Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to wrap up this this series on becoming disciples. And we've talked the last several weeks about um, a handful of things that disciples are required to do and some things that and characteristics of disciples and by no means has this been an exhaustive list of all the things you're supposed to do as a disciple but if you can grab these five or six or seven things that we're going to go through during this series you can be well on your way um, to beginning the the journey of being a disciple so we have three points we're going to get through this week and the first one is this disciples of christ serve others. It's a characteristic of a disciple of Jesus, and the the disciples of Christ serve others. Let's read John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, and then we will uh, skip down to verse 12 and go 12 through 15. So let's read these. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. Now I'm going to stop right here for a second and say whoever translated this had to be from the south or had family from the south because he didn't call it dinner. He called it correctly supper. So it was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Let's skip down to verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. One of the things that, uh, one of the several, the many things that uh, Jesus shows us here in this passage is the true definition of leadership. And in our culture today, you'll find a lot of people who are just now catching up to that definition. And the definition of leadership is really serving. And we see that Jesus serves here. And so if we're going to be his disciples and we're going to, we're going to serve other people, there's a couple of things that we have to be prepared for. And I just want to address two of them real quickly. One of the things that we have to be prepared for is to do things that require humility. Do things that require humility. One of my favorite definitions for the word humility is freedom from arrogance or pride. And if you've ever been someone who struggled with arrogance or pride, you know that um, it, it's, it's kind of like a bondage. And so that's why I love the definition of this word humility. But in the Jewish culture, uh, the, the act of foot washing was something they were very familiar with and we are not very accustomed to um, out here in the West and during our time frame and in our culture. And so um, let me explain a little bit about what foot washing was <clears throat> and what it meant to the people who had it done to them. So if you were a guest in a home, that, uh, and, and the people who owned the home were not very wealthy, they would leave a basin and a jar of water for guests to clean their own feet. 
Now this, you got to remember, this is the, the Middle East in a time where there's no real transportation other than, you know, maybe a horse or a camel or a donkey. And most of the people walked around um, and they were wearing open sandals, what we would refer to today as sandals. And so their feet were very dirty, trudging through dirt and mounds of, you know, uh, mounds of, of, of dirt and mud going from place to place, depending on the weather. And so it was customary for when you came into a home for your feet to be washed because it was, yes, it was refreshing, but it was also a cleanliness thing. And if your family didn't have enough money to, to hire a servant, an employed person to work in your home, you would just leave a basin and a jar of water for the, for the guests that were coming to your house to wash their own feet. However, if you were from a home that was wealthy, you had a servant wash the feet of the guests. Now in the Old Testament, it shows us that the act of washing someone else's feet or foot washing was the lowest of all the servant tasks. So if you have a two or three people who are working for you and they're helping you out in, in their home and you're, one of them is sweeping the floors or changing the diapers, which I'm sure Brian and Sam, you probably need some help changing diapers right now with the third baby coming this last week. And, or, or whatever, the, you know, the, tending the livestock or, or milking the cows or whatever. Whatever that list looked like, these guys who were employed in these homes did not want to wash the feet. It was the lowest of jobs. They didn't want to get down there with some grimy, nasty, sweaty, just some of that gunk between their toes and start washing people's feet off when they came in the house. It was considered <clears throat> one of the worst and lowest jobs for servants. But here Jesus is not just showing his disciples an example of servanthood, but going to the extreme. And let me show you what I mean. In that scripture earlier, we read that um, Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything. Let's stop right there. He knew he had authority over everything. And in that moment when all authority is with him, when he realizes and, and he knows that he's been given authority over everything, what does he do? Does he stand up and make some big, brilliant speech? Nope. <clears throat> does he line out how the church should be run? Does he give some secrets or does he tell everyone to bow down to him? No, that's not what he does at all. The first thing that he does when all authority has been placed in his hand is go and serve his followers. He served them. He not only served them, he served them by doing the job that was considered the lowest thing. He humbled himself and gave an example for what the disciples were supposed to do for each other and other people, but also what the disciples were supposed to be, or what we as disciples are supposed to be doing for others. <clears throat> My question for us as believers in Christ and those who want to be becoming disciples and who are disciples of Christ is this. Is there any job that we view as being beneath us? Is there anything, is there something that we won't do because we have a high opinion of ourselves? And what I mean is, is there anything, any way that you could serve or you've been asked to serve by, by trying to help <clears throat> the homeless or maybe serve in your church or, or, or stop and help someone who might be struggling on the side of the road? Is there some, some part of us that goes, I don't do that. 
I don't do that no more. That's not who I am anymore. I can try to help, you know, call somebody for you or pay somebody for you, but I don't do that. Those are the areas that Jesus is, is asking us by his actions and by his words to flip the script and change our mind about. That there would be nothing that is above us because we will have opportunities to serve others and each other in the church by doing things that may seem below us or beneath our skill set. Before we say we're not going to do something that we've been asked to do or we're not going to serve others in a certain way, let's just think for a second uh, about Jesus' skill set. Casting out demons, speaking to a fig tree that dries up, raising the dead, walking on water, multiplying food to feed 5,000 5, people who are just from just a loaf and, a, and some fishes. His skill set was far surpassing that of someone who would go down and wash the feet. But what he's saying here is there is nothing I won't avoid to serve someone else. And we need to follow his example because disciples of Christ serve others. The other thing that we need to be prepared to do is to be interrupted. We need to prepare to be interrupted. There's multiple instances in Scripture where Jesus is interrupted and he takes the time with the person who's interrupting him to actually serve them. I just want to bring three to our attention here really quickly today. Matthew 19. Jesus is interrupted by children when their parents had brought them to be blessed by him. You may remember that the, the disciples, uh, they say, don't bother Jesus, don't, don't interrupt him, he's teaching all of us. And he, they scold the parents for bringing the children, and then Jesus stops what he's doing and says, hey, hey, wait, let those children come to me. And he uses them as an example of the innocence we need to have as Christ followers. He's interrupted in Luke chapter 8, when the woman with the issue of blood pushed through a crowd just to touch the hem of his garment. He's walking and talking and teaching, and he stops when she touches him. He looks for her, and when he finds her, he spends some time to encourage her faith. He's interrupted again in Luke chapter 18 with the blind man who interrupted him by shouting out, I want to see Son of David have mercy on me. The crowds tried to to hush him and, and get him to be quiet, but the scripture says that when they hushed him and shushed him and tried to get him to tone it down, he screamed even louder. He interrupted the master, and Jesus came to his aid. We as disciples of Christ, if we're going to serve others, we have to be willing to stop what we're doing and help someone in need. Now, I don't want us to get all religious and legalistic about this. Like if your wife is going into labor and you're hightailing it to the, to the hospital so she can give birth in the hospital with their doctors and the guy on the side of the road is like, hey man, can I get a burger? You can pass that one up to, let, to, to, to take care of your wife and let the next person hand him uh, you know, uh, a drive through meal. I don't want to get religious or legalistic about it, but I do want us to be aware that there are some times when God's going to bring people in our path that need something, and it's not going to be convenient. It's going to interrupt us. And if we are prepared for us, prepared for those moments right now, we won't miss them. Disciples of Christ serve others. 
The second thing that disciples do is disciples of Christ give everything. They give everything. Let's read Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everybody else. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sister, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it. Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started the building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So, you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. What Jesus is saying here... Is he saying, don't have this big emotional moment. Don't have this moment where you're just kind of feeling it at that moment and you just say, yes, I'm going to be a disciple and just run forward without thinking or measuring the cost. This is not a spur of the moment type decision. If you're going to be someone who submits to Christ, you're going to be someone who tries to emulate him and follow the ways and his commands, and we're going to try to lose the rights to our own self, let's stop for a second and let's gauge the cost. It may cost you some relationships. It may cost you some dreams that you have for your own life. It may cost... Some things that you think are fun that Scripture outlines that you should stay away from, that's the cost he's talking about counting before you get involved. I know a lot of people, when we talk about giving everything, can almost push back a little bit and think, man, give everything. I've got a spouse. I've got kids. I've got a, I've got a mortgage. I've got a career. I've got responsibilities. What do you mean? How am I supposed to give everything? And I want to tell anybody who might have that thought in the back of your head that you are covered, my friend, because all those things are good. We can argue if the mortgage is good. The house is good. The mortgage, we'd like that to be paid off soon. But everything else in that list of of responsibilities and, and working to provide for your family and your children and your spouse, those are all great things. But the benefit for us as believers is this. There is no contradiction in Jesus. There's no contradiction in his word. There's no contradiction when we serve him. Because if you put him first and give him everything and serve him, what you're going to find out is that all of the earthly responsibilities that that, that may grasp your mind every morning when you get out of bed or cross your mind before you go to sleep at night, if if we will follow him, prioritize him, give everything to him, then all of those needs will be taken care of and we will accomplish his purpose if we prioritize him. <clears throat> Disciples of Christ give everything. The third and final point I want to go through real quickly here tonight is this. is Disciples of Christ want 
to be his disciples. They want to be his disciples. Let's go back to that scripture we read just a few minutes ago, just the first line of Luke 14, 20, 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple. If you want <clears throat> to be my disciple. Jesus uses that language very specifically. If any of you wants to be my disciple, because he's talking to the person's desire. Jesus is pointing to a person's desire, which is a reflection of their heart. If we have truly given our life to Christ, and if we're truly about following Him, then our appetites and our desires will change. Our appetites and our desires will change. When I talk about those things changing, let me give you an example through a quote. We as disciples of Christ must prioritize active obedience over passive comfort. If you don't get nothing else out of this message, I want you to write that down. If you're a tweeter, that's a tweetable quote right there. You can snapshot it and put it on Instagram. There's a whole bunch of things you can do with that one, but I'm going to read it to you one more time. <clears throat> we as disciples of Christ must prioritize active obedience over passive comfort. Our culture promotes comfort. You have a comfortable bed. You have a comfortable pillow. Are the seats in your car comfortable? Is the, are the chair you're sitting in comfortable? My answer would be no at the moment. But is it, all these things that are pursuing comfort and more money so you don't have to work as hard or do something in this effort to, to promote a life of comfort. <clears throat> but for the disciple of Christ, active obedience has to trump passive comfort. I want to wrap up the series by telling you about a telling you a quick story about a man that was a disciple of Christ. Now, and sometime in the future, we'll we'll go through every single one of the of the disciples and talk about their commitment and how they died and where they went to fulfill the Great Commission as apostles. <clears throat> we'll talk about them in the future, but I wanted to talk about somebody that was a little bit closer to our day and age because there, sometimes we can all be guilty of opening up the Bible and thinking, you know, yeah, these are great stories, and we, we kind of detach the fact that, and, and ignore the fact that these are real people that were being written about in Scripture. We kind of view them as, Oh, it's a story, and we kind of view it from that lens because maybe we've heard it preached a lot before. <clears throat> but so, so to get away from that, I want to talk about another disciple of Christ that lived not 1900 or 2000 years ago, but around 100 years ago. You may be familiar with him if you've been in church for a while, and if you're not, um, <clears throat> no problem at all. I'll give you a quick little synopsis of his life. His name was Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German man. He was born in 1906, and <clears throat> he was born into a fairly affluent family in Germany. His parents uh, were, were people who promoted them, uh, their children. There were eight of them total, so Diedrich had seven brothers and sisters. They promoted them to get involved in areas of study because they all had really brilliant minds, and they also promoted them to get involved in the arts and performing arts. <clears throat> Diedrich, as a young man, was a brilliant musician. He was... Uh, trained incredibly and had a really, a really uh, unbelievable gift for playing the piano. 
And everyone who saw him play from a young age just assumed, oh my goodness, this guy is going to be a musician throughout his life. That is what he's going to be. But at the age of 14, Diedrich kind of surprised everyone when he came in and announced to the family one day that his area of study was not going to be law or science or anything like that. His area of study that he had chosen to pursue was theology. Now, his dad wasn't very happy about that. He wanted him to pick something else that he thought would be useful. He didn't grow up in a, in, in, in a very overly religious home, <clears throat> but he stuck to his guns and decided, I'm, just, I'm going to choose theology as the area to study. As he got older, he encountered the gospel and he, he, he became saved and gave his life to Jesus. And he dove deep into the scripture and <clears throat> wanted to find out exactly what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. When he was old enough, he left Germany and he traveled abroad. He studied for a while in Europe and he actually went to Spain and was an associate pastor there for a, for a short time of a German-speaking church in that area. After that, he came to the United States to, to study um, for about a year um, at a Bible college in New York. And he was so, <clears throat> um, um, uh, he was so focused on Scripture He was so focused on following the lead that Jesus had set out for him, he actually wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. When he got to the United States, he was a little disappointed because he he went to visit many churches that were in the area. And what he found and why he was disappointed is because none of them were really preaching the gospel. They weren't talking about the cross and about sin about repenting and changing the way we think and the way we live. They weren't talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They weren't talking about the suffering that we would have to go through as his followers and giving everything that they have to him. The churches that he went to, he heard messages about cultural things that were going on. And sure, the the ministers or the pastors or the priests would slide in some scripture verses here or there, but it was always about these cultural issues and his heart was grieved. And during, uh, at the very end of his time here in the United States and in New York, a friend of his said, hey, come with me to a different kind of church. So Diedrich, this short, pale-skinned German guy with these little tiny glasses, <clears throat> was brought by his friend into a completely African-American church. He loved it, fell in love with it. He fell in love with it for two reasons. Number one, the guy behind the pulpit was preaching the gospel, calling people to repentance and following Jesus at a deeper level. And the second reason was is he loved the music. He loved the style. It was something he had never heard before growing up in, in Europe. But he also loved the content of the songs because it talked about suffering and following Jesus regardless of obstacles. Right before he left New York and went back to Germany, he actually went to, the, to the, uh, a record store in New York and bought the music so he could take it back with him to, to Germany to show the people in the churches what this worship and this song, these songs were really like. Right before he left, he, he became disheartened again because he saw the way that the, the people in this African-American church were treated by people who were not black. You can imagine in the early, you know, in the 1930s, what this looked like for this little bitty pale-skinned guy to go into this predominantly African-American church and fall in love with these people and realize that in his study of Scripture that correctly that 
every person is made in the image of God and they have intrinsic value. So to see how they were treated during a time of, uh, of overblown and enhanced racism really broke his heart. His heart was continued to be broken when he went back to Germany to see that the churches there had started to become institutions of the government. And here's what I mean. During that time, Hitler had, was beginning to rise to power and some of the people who were in the government, they, they started to try to figure out ways to gain a, a stronghold through propaganda and through all these different things of trying to get the Germans to look at the Jewish people and, and, and get rid of them. And so what happened is the government actually got involved in the churches and they would, they would um, influence the pastors. And one of the things that they tried to do was they tried to get the pastors and the ministers to completely cut out the Old Testament. Why? Because it's basically all about the Jewish people. While they were convincing them to do that, Hitler was on the back end with a, a different group of people and he was rewriting the New Testament to try to remove all of the references of Jesus being Jewish. He wanted to completely scrub that, that fact from Scripture so he can manipulate the people through the churches to have a prejudice against the Jews. When Diedrich Bonhoeffer came back and saw this, his heart was already hurting from what he saw in America, and, 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 and he was just distraught by what he saw in the churches. Because they no longer preached the gospel, they began to talk about the cultural things and things of national importance. And they'd slide a scripture in like he had heard before, but it was something a little more sinister on this one. It grieved his heart so badly that he and some of his friends started an entire new church called the Confessing Church. Their entire goal was to, was to rebuild the, the, the idea of the church being built upon confessing Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, what he knew to be as the true gospel. But as you can imagine, the longer it went, the more known it became, the German government began to oppress this confessing church. They resisted them so much that they were forced to go underground and some of these pastors became very afraid for their own life and so they became less and less vocal over time. He, he was distraught by what was going on in, in Germany and at the beginning Hitler started with um, expelling Jews, not exterminating them. That came a little bit later. And he was just trying to get them out of the country. And so as this was going on and it was breaking um, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's heart, he decided, you know what? This is getting worse and worse <clears throat> and worse. I need to get away from it. So he packed up again and went to America one more time. And after being here in the United States for a few months, he wrote one of his friends a letter and said, I have made a terrible mistake. I should not have left Germany. My heart is to rebuild the Christian church in Germany after this, this time of Hitler is over and these, and these corrupt men and these Nazi regime is done. <clears throat> I want to come back in and I want to replace this crazy, um, manipulated, evil doctrine that's infiltrated the churches. I want to put the church back on the correct footing of the gospel. And that was his heart, but he felt like he would have no credibility if he just waited for all the bad stuff to go 
to be done and then come back to Germany and then get involved. He wanted to go through everything with his people. Several months later, he <clears throat> packed all of his stuff up and went back to Germany with the intent of doing exactly that, trying to gain respect from the people of Germany by being there with them through their difficult time and knowing that that was going to come to an end, he wanted to rebuild <clears throat> the German church. As things began to get worse and Hitler changed from just expelling the Jews to exterminating them, his heart was so moved that he began to put his own life on the line, him and several of his friends, to put their life on the line to try to help Jews escape and get out of the country to save their life because all men were created in God's image and all of them were worth saving. He <clears throat> realized that trying to, to take small number of Jewish people across the, the, the German border was, was effective for them, but in the grand scheme of things, there was still a lot of killing going on. And so he, <clears throat> he and some of his friends became co-conspirators against Hitler and the Nazi party. He actually joined the German intelligence agency as a double agent so he could take secrets from uh, the German army and get them to the British army and to Winston Churchill. And they, it got to a point where eventually that Diedrich Bonhoeffer and his five associates tried their own assassination attempt to get rid of Hitler. There was a bomb involved and they had brought the bomb to a location where Hitler was supposed to be. And unfortunately, their plan was found out. It was uncovered that he was a double agent and they were conspiring against the government and the Nazi party and they viewed that as treason. <clears throat> they arrested Diedrich Bonhoeffer and his associates and threw them in jail. They were there for about two years, <clears throat> but Diedrich Bonhoeffer never stopped proclaiming Jesus, following him, and sharing the news of the gospel and building disciples even from inside that German prison. He had so much favor with the guards that they would allow people to sneak in pens and pieces of paper so we could write things down and <clears throat> distribute them to other people and other people in the jail and, and write things and, and write letters to people and his friends and his family. He was there until April 5th, <clears throat> 1945. Less than 30 days before Hitler had commit suicide and the German army is overrun and surrenders and the allies win and the war is complete. Less than 30 days before that, Hitler, realizing that everything was collapsing in on him, decided he wanted to take one last shot at anyone who was against him in his life and ordered the Diedrich Bonhoeffer and his five associates to be killed. <clears throat> they were hanged on April 5th. About 10 years later, a doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's hanging described what he saw, and I want you to listen to his words very carefully. <clears throat> the prisoners were taken from their cells, and the verdicts of court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. 
I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer, then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. In the church world, we hear a lot about the word legacy. It's thrown around quite a bit. I know people in business who want to leave their legacy after they go and want some big tower or building named after them. I know there are politicians who want to quote-unquote leave a legacy and they, they, after they, their, their time in, in office and after they pass, they have like a school or a road or something named after them. We talk about leaving a legacy and how do we do that here as Christian men and women and I'm telling you as disciples of Jesus Christ, I don't know that I've ever seen a greater statement of legacy than what I just read I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. I pray that I would be able to live up to such a statement, my own self. And I pray the same thing for all of you. I want to read you just a quick few sentences from Diedrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. And I want you to listen very closely to what he talks about in these few sentences. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ. For whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. I want to wrap up this series and wrap up our message tonight by making a pretty big statement. And so I just want you to be prepared for it. And some of you may not, it may not be big to some of you, but I, I think it will be to some. If we call ourselves Christians and we have no desire to change, no want to change, no want to be like Jesus or to follow his lead or become his disciple, it may be because we haven't truly submitted our life to the Lord. It may be because we have not really truly met Jesus. Why would I say something so potentially offensive to some people? And let me explain. The reason is this. 
I myself am trying to be a disciple, a better disciple, a better follower, a pupil of Christ. But he has given me an assignment as a pastor for the people who who call Roots Community Church their home church and their fellowship of believers. And because I hold that title, I cannot... I cannot, by the mandate of Scripture and, by, and from the mandate of Christ to His life and the example He set for us, I cannot look at anyone who would attend our church or listen to this message and say, man, just, did, did you pray a prayer with me? Great. Just go back and, you know, read your Bible a little bit and come to church and give a little bit in the offering and, and you're all good, man. Just try to go do good and allow you to think that going back to the life that you were living before Jesus, now just kind of plugging in and saying, yeah, I'm a believer in him, is enough. Confessing with your mouth and truly believing in your heart, yes, you will be saved. But if we're going to be disciples, there has to be a want, a desire in us. And so it it is implored upon someone in my position to look at you through grace and through love and say, my friend, if, you have, if you've said that you're a Christian or you're a disciple, you're a follower of Jesus, but nothing has changed, I fear for you. I fear that you may not have given your life to him. I fear that it may have just been this, the thing in a moment and no cost was counted and no, no transformation happened. And if that's you, I want to implore you through love to come to Christ and give your life to Him. If you're someone who's sitting there and going, man, I do have that desire, but I don't always act and obey that desire. I kind of push against it. I've been pursuing a life of comfort. There is good news because I am guilty of the same thing. I don't know anyone who is alive who has not in some way, shape, or form had that same struggle or that same uh, shortcoming. Every one of us needs grace. Every person falls short. But the fact that you have that desire to be like Jesus, to give Him more, I believe is evidence in your life, my friend, that you really did become born again. If you're someone who is sitting there and you've been listening to this series and you've heard us talk about giving up the rights to our own life and you've talked about doing things his way and following his commands and <clears throat> active obedience over passive comfort and we we talk about um uh being a servant to other people and giving everything and if you've if you've seen if you heard those things and there's something in you that says i need to do that that is the holy spirit of god drawing you to himself and saying yes you can be my disciple Any believer can. But I want to encourage you today, as we wrap up this series, I want to encourage you to ask yourself one final question, and that's this. Do I want to be his disciple? All this other stuff and knowing what to do is well and good, but is there a desire in me? And if you can search your heart and know anywhere that that desire exists, that is a great thing and I celebrate that with you. And now we as imperfect people have the grace of God that compels us to come forward and obey His Word and become true disciples of Christ.